0: Hi and welcome to our podcast. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Karen Graham. Karen is an LCSW and she is the owner of a sole proprietorship in her own name. Karen, welcome. Can we please start by you letting us know if all private clinical practices are for profit or non for profit?
1: Hello and thanks for having me. All clinical practices are not for profit, although
0: Most of them are for profit. Okay, that was an easy one. All right, so let's move forward to getting some information about how to start your own clinical practice. So could you please let us know some of the actual nuts and bolts of moving towards owning your own clinical practice? Sure. First of all, it's imperative that you have a
1: license, and each state provides licenses, and each state has their own requirements for how that's acquired. And after you get your license, it's very important that you get liability insurance. And I would actually get that as soon as you're seeing clients. Even though agencies and so forth are insured, you also need to be insured. Um, There's a process for getting incorporated for your own practice. First you need to decide what kind of business that you're having. Is it a sole proprietorship, an LLC group business? Also, while you're putting together your business, it's gonna be very important for you to get these regulatory paperwork items done. You're gonna have to get what's called an F E I N, which is a federal income tax number for people who are employers. So even if you're in a sole proprietorship situation, you're your own employer, so you need an FEIN number. You're gonna need something called an NPI, which is a National Provider Identification for HIPAA purposes, so doctors, nurses, everybody who works in healthcare gets an NPI number. You're going to have to be registered with a group called CAQH, which is the Council for Affordable Quality Healthcare. So a lot of healthcare plans have gotten together and created a database, basically, to make sure all the providers are actually qualified and verified and able to provide health care for clients. And you have to make sure that your data is in that database, all to protect our clients. So all of these things have to be taken care of. At the time that you're able to become licensed and a sole proprietor or group proprietor, you're going to have to fill out all this paperwork. It's all online, so it's easy to, to come by and you can kind of get some coaching and advice when the time comes, but that's all important to fill out when you need to.
0: Okay, let me clarify one thing. When you say license, you're talking about ensuring that the person who's setting up a business has an LCSW or licensed clinical social work. Is that right? That's right. So when you
1: graduate, you're going to have to be working in conjunction with somebody who is a licensed clinician for a certain number of hours, depending on your state. In this state, it's 3,000 hours. And during that time, you're not going to be able to practice on your own or set up your own business. When the time comes, you'll take the test to get a clinical license.
0: And that's when you'll be able to think about setting up your own business. Okay. And you also mentioned different kinds of businesses like a sole proprietor or LLC or group business. So I think folks are going to want to know which kind is most common and why they might want to do that. Sure. At
1: that point, you want to decide, do you want to set sail on your own So you have maximum kind of control over your own business. But when you do that, that means that you're responsible for all of your own business practices. That means you're going to have to find your own clients. You're going to have to do your own accounting. You're going to do your own marketing. You're going to have to find your own office space or do your own technology, however you want to set up your business. Some people find it easier, maybe even more fun to set up a business with other clinicians. So you share office space, you share accounting responsibilities, you share maybe marketing. So all the business practices get shared among a certain group of people. So at that point, you might have already met some clinicians that you think, wow, it would be fun to share uh, a business together, and you can decide to set up a group practice where you're each individual practitioners but you share the business aspect of the corporation.
0: Okay, so just one last question about that. You mentioned the paperwork necessary to get the FEIN, NPI, CAEQH. We also mentioned other paperwork. My understanding is part of that is articles of incorporation and some kind of a state registration. And I'm a little curious as to how that operates.
1: If you're just going as a sole proprietor, and even if you're in a group practice, you are still basically individual practitioners just sharing office space. Most group practices do not incorporate as, you know, like an an S-corp, what we call an S-corp or a C-corp or a larger corporation. You will not start out doing that. I can pretty much guarantee that. So I wouldn't worry about articles of incorporation or any of those sorts of things. You'll just start out as a sole proprietor in a group practice. Basically, the things that you'll be worried about are how you're going to be doing billing. You know, most of billing is done these days on portals. Like, for example, one common portal right now is called Availity. And you'll be worried about how you're going to set up your accounting, which you need to do immediately. You don't really even need an accountant for that, although maybe I would hire one to set up the books so that they're done correctly, and you're paying your taxes appropriately. Because I know many therapists who the first couple years failed to pay their taxes appropriately, and the IRS does catch up And then you owe a big bill. So I would be very careful about setting that up correctly. And then, of course, marketing. How are you going to let people know that you're up and about? And oftentimes, when you're coming from an agency, let's say the first couple years out of school, you've worked for an agency to get your supervision and get your hours under your belt. Um, It's not like you can go back to your agency and say, how do I set up a private practice? They're not gonna be joyous about that. You're gonna have to get some outside coaching to set up your own proprietorship and get help on how to market yourself and get your own clients.
0: Okay, so can you please tell me a little bit about how you get paneled with insurance companies?
1: Well, that's a very good question because it depends on where you are and who you're working with. Okay, let me explain first what paneling means. Insurance companies set up groups and individual therapists or practitioners that they will work with. So it's a smooth process. So Blue Cross, Blue Shield, or Cigna, and these insurance companies have relationships with practitioners. So it's a smooth process of billing, basically. Those are called panels. Uh, So Typically, these insurance companies like to work with group practices because there's a mass of therapists and practitioners for them to work with, and they prefer to work with larger groups of therapists than work in individual therapists. It's more efficient, let's say. So unfortunately, they're moving into a realm where a lot of the insurance companies turn down working with individual therapists, especially in the Chicago metropolitan area. Their panels are full, so to speak. You know, they only work with so many practitioners and then they cut off the database. There are some that are open, generally Blue Cross Blue Shield, for example, keeps their database open a lot. However, if you're in rural areas, sometimes they're in need of therapists and many insurance companies have open databases and keep therapists coming in all the time. And sometimes if you have a specific skill, like some foreign languages or some special therapy skills, you know, they will let you get on their panel, but you just have to check with each insurance company and let them know what you're particularly skilled in and who you are,
0: to see if you can get on their panel. Okay, thanks. That's very helpful. So the next question really has to do with the process of transitioning from working full-time for an employer to how do you move from that situation to building your own clientele and moving into being fully invested in your own business.
1: What most people do is that they start to take on Clients outside of their regular agency work. Most people are working full time for an agency, as I said before, to get their sized hours. And then they will start to take on a few clients on evenings and weekends on their own. Either they will share some office space or they'll do telehealth. And um, then that's the time when you have to start marketing yourself. Now, that might mean setting up a page on Psychology Today, which is what a lot of people do now, or set up a web page telling people about yourself and your skills. Uh, And as that practice grows, well, as you know, it's unethical basically to take clients from the agency that you're employed in. I think that goes without saying. But it's okay to start taking on new clients that have no attachment to the agency that you're working for. So as your name gets out and you start taking on new clients, that practice will build as you like it and you'll get to a tipping point where you have to kind of make the jump to your own full-time practice and let go of the agency practice because you will get too busy. Sometimes now that there's more telehealth, people will supplement some of the newer online referral agencies depending on what's going on at the time that you're starting to make this transition because in a few years the scene of therapy may be a bit different than it is now you're just going to have to see what's out there to help supplement your own practice
0: okay thank you makes sense so you mentioned telehealth a couple times so i'm curious as to what restrictions to which we should adhere when using that as a modality for practice
1: well, the COVID changed the use of telehealth tremendously. Before COVID, telehealth was really looked down on and there were a lot of restrictions on it. And of course, COVID opened up the doors for video telehealth a lot and even phone and some other means of telehealth. So a lot of insurance companies pay for telehealth. I would just really strongly suggest that when you're embarking on telehealth that you check the restrictions and the opportunities in each state. Generally, you need to be licensed in the state that you're providing telehealth. Meaning, if you're doing telehealth in Illinois and your patient is in Illinois and the insurance is in Illinois, you're going to be probably fine. If you're located in Arizona, and your patient is in Illinois, you probably need to be licensed in Arizona as well. But I would always check with the state licensure board, wherever you are, to make sure that you're following the ethics and the laws of the telehealth situation. Wherever, But by the time you're practicing, this could all be different because the rules, the norms and the ethics of practicing telehealth are in flux and changing rapidly. So, and I think they're going to be very much expanded and there's going to be a lot of creativity around therapy and telehealth happening in the next five to 10 years.
0: Okay. On a slightly different topic, one thing that I have observed among people I know who are working on their own private clinical practice is that it's very challenging for them to create a schedule and a structure that they're able to adhere to. So oftentimes I think that people will take clients when clients are available, even when they had previously thought that they were going to protect certain parts of their weekly schedule. Can you speak to that issue?
1: Absolutely. So I've been in private practice since long before most of you were born. And at that time, we had very rigid schedules for doing private practice. We had one hour in the office once a week, oftentimes our clients didn't even know our direct phone number. It was very difficult to actually contact us between the times that we met for therapy. And if they did, they would leave us a message. And sometimes we wouldn't call them back for a while unless it was an actual emergency. And some clinicians actually didn't take emergencies. They would refer emergencies to go to the emergency room. So there was a very strict boundary. Now, as we've become more available to our clients, our clients know our phone numbers. They can text us. We have maybe different schedules in terms of seeing them, maybe a half hour here, or a half hour there. Our schedules are very flexible with theirs. There is much more of a tendency to have looser boundaries and fuzzier boundaries with our clients, and that requires the clinicians to be much more mindful and careful about staying with some boundaries that you set up for yourself, because our clients want to contact us and they feel they need us and they will reach out to us they know our numbers and they know how to reach us and we have to come up with strategies of letting them know that these are times when we are unavailable and so please respect that and we've found that our clients really do respect I personally have found that my clients absolutely respect my boundaries if I let them know what they are. If I'm clear with what my boundaries are, my clients absolutely respect them and it really isn't a problem. Unless there's a psychological problem where my clients have a hard time themselves with their boundaries, then I just have to become a little bit stricter myself with it. But it is something that you should think about right away rather than wait until it becomes a problem.
0: Okay. Thank you. So last question. What do you wish you had known before you got started with your counseling business?
1: There are actually two things. And one thing I didn't mention that I wish I had mentioned before is it's important to find some things in your practice that distinguish you. I happen to know another language, which was very, very helpful in my practice. And I was able to work with many people who know that language. It happens to be American Sign Language. So I was able to differentiate myself in the world of clinicians by being able to work with deaf people, deaf families, parents of deaf children. And it really was a wonderful part of my practice. And I was able to have a very thriving practice because of that so if there's something about you as you're starting out that you're very interested in and want to grow and develop I would strongly suggest that you do that so that you can put that on your website and put that on your marketing material and let people know this is something I'm really great at and I really love working with these type of people and doing this type of therapy, and it will really enhance your practice. I just fell into that, and I'm lucky I did. One of the things that I didn't realize when I first started was that therapy is a very changing occupation. I always thought when I started that there would be the hour, the clinical hour in the office, and what's actually happened is that Everything has changed in therapy in the many decades that I've been practicing. And now I know that that mindset is going to continue. Things will change wildly. So whatever you think about therapy now, expect that it's going to be extremely different in the decades that you have to look forward to practicing. Just keep an open mind, realize that many interesting and wonderful things will happen and it'll all be different. But you will be out there providing therapy, helping people, and spreading the wonderful things that you do in the therapy world.
0: Yeah, that would be exciting to see. Thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today.